You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is a place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, brilliant, diverse philosophers as they give their take on the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Jason Stanley. Jason is a philosophy professor at Yale University. He's done work in epistemology, philosophy of language, and social and political philosophy. He's also written articles for the New York Times, tackling topics like democracy, the economic situation in Detroit, and silencing. His new book, How Propaganda Works, will be released this year. Welcome, Jason, to the Unmute Podcast. How does it feel to be our very first guest? I'm very honored, Maisha, and of course, to have you interviewing me is a great opportunity. I look forward to it. I think we're going to have some fun. As we always do. (laughs) Your father, Manfred Stanley, was a pan-Africanist and a sociologist at Syracuse University. So why did you become a philosopher instead of following your father's footsteps? And was he disappointed, like all parents are, when their children decide Uh they want to study philosophy instead of other financially guaranteed pursuits like business? Uh, He was certainly not disappointed that that we didn't go into uh, financially lucrative things. That would have been a great scandal uh, in our family. Uh, it was always said that a life is lived for a higher, meaningful purpose. Uh, he, could, In fact, he, he basically considered my choice of philosophy to be selling out for a higher salary and higher prestige uh, rather than, uh, you know, pursuing the good. Okay. At the dinner table, it was certainly emphasized that uh, we were on this planet to make it a better place, and our life choices should reflect that. And the two areas of philosophy, the two areas of academia uh, that he most disparaged were analytic philosophy and economics. And my brother got his PhD in economics, and I went into analytic philosophy. So we we were reacting strongly, but not reacting so strongly that we went into finance. Okay. Um, But as far as... The influence of his interests on my own, uh, he was a, he was teaching the social theory seminar in the sociology department. And he also had a bi-weekly uh, uh, reading group on philosophy where they read philosophy of education, Dewey, uh, and then the classics, Plato, Aristotle, Kant. I knew philosophy was something that was greatly admired. Uh, but of course, analytic philosophy, not so much. But at the time, at the table, he was often discussing the German philosopher Jürgen Habermas, uh, who had greatly influenced him at the time. And Habermas's focus was on political deliberation and what sorts of norms there were for talking about politics in public. Uh, one possible norm is you need to be respectful of the view uh, of the other. You need to take it into account. So a view that you find in Du Bois's Souls of Black Folk and Rawls in his book Political Liberalism calls reasonableness. Habermas was attracted to a norm of objective reason. And 
I remember my father mocking that at the dinner table all the time. So in a kind of reactionary way, I thought, okay, I bet objective reason is vital for democracy. And that affected greatly my choice of uh, my, my pursuit uh, in when I went to college. You have several books on epistemology and language. So what are some of the questions that you try to get at or try to address in those books? I essentially got captured by the topics in the theory of meaning, the role of truth and meaning and truth and reference. And, and I wanted to argue in my philosophy of language work that essentially there was some systematic way to understand each other. And you can see a connection here to questions in the foundations of democratic political theory. Uh, is, there, is, there, is public discourse possible? Is objective public discourse possible? Are we forever misunderstanding each other? Uh, or is, is there sort of a, a crystalline structure of communication that can serve as a shared way uh, to grasp each other's thoughts? So it was that picture I was defending in my early work in philosophy of language. And I was always seeking some kind of uh, method to think about the questions that fundamentally moved me, which I think I've come to realize, I guess, are questions in social and political philosophy. And so early on, well, early on, I would, I guess, six, seven years into my career as a professor, I realized that philosophy of language wasn't giving me enough resources to grapple with those questions. So actually, I, I had never taken a single undergraduate or graduate seminar on epistemology, not a single one. And I turned to epistemology probably, I wrote one paper when I was a junior faculty member, but then I really seriously turned to it after I got tenure. And I wrote my first book in epistemology. And, and really, my first book is my first publication entirely in epistemology, uh, which people found weird because until then I had just published in philosophy of language. So, but I, I really thought that epistemology is going to be crucial for understanding some of the questions about knowledge and power that I was thinking about. So, so I was, I came into epistemology wanting answers to questions like, how does practical and epistemic authority interact? This is a question that is very central in political philosophy, especially social and political philosophy. Practical authority gives people certain, a certain kind of epistemic advantage. So my first book is called Knowledge and Practical Interests. And it is about the relation between practical concepts, such as practical interests, and knowledge. So there I'm trying to grapple in a kind of apolitical way with a very central topic in social and political philosophy. My other research area over the last 15 years and big focus of work is, is in the service of arguing that knowledge of facts underlies what we take to be practical skill. And this is democratically important because the division between those who labor and those who reflect is extremely central to uh, hierarchy in Western thought. Okay. So although you're doing this kind of strict analytical stuff, epistemology and linguistics, it has always had a connection to the social. I've pushed it that way, yes. Okay. I'm on social media a lot, as you know, and 
people think that I enjoy social media because I like checking out people's posts and I do, but I'm really into bio sections and Facebook doesn't really have this too much, but Twitter and Instagram does. So when you go to someone's feed or whatever, it has their name and there's a description of them. So I'm really intrigued by how people describe themselves. So sometimes I'll see um, a bio, for example, it's say John Doe, lover of life, sports fanatic and philosopher, right? And a lot of people put philosopher as, a, as describing themselves. And it's pretty clear that this person is not what we call a professional philosopher, but he or she feels that they are a philosopher. Do you think to call oneself a philosopher, one must be trained in philosophy and do philosophy for a living? Or is being a philosopher a way of thinking? Ah, oh, that's a fantastic question. I'm, I think that philosopher ca carries with it a kind of suggestion that one enjoys reflection. And I think that that's an extremely important sense of the term. Uh, and I often describe myself as teaching philosophy or working in philosophy rather than a philosopher. Because first of all, I don't want to distinguish myself from others who reflect, but do so without teaching in a professional setting. And secondly, because there's a kind of authoritative connotation of philosopher that I don't want to, I don't want to abuse. I mean, my general reaction is that I hope everyone is a philosopher. <laughs> Every, everyone should so self-describe. <laughs> Although there are definitely some people uh, out there who really, really <laughs> should not. It would be highly misleading. But we, we can also say that about professional philosophers as well, right? Absolutely. 100%. <laughs> Many professional philosophers, I would say, teach philosophy <laughs> or grade papers in philosophy. But uh, yes, well said. <laughs> So you are in Paris giving a series of lectures, and the day you arrived, right, the offices of Satirical Magazine was attacked. And you will later go on to write a New York Times piece about it. What is your opinion about what's, what's going on in Paris? Well, I'm no expert on French society. In fact, I've been asked to comment because of that New York Times article, but I have declined to comment in any way as any kind of authority on the complexities of French society. My piece was really about liberalism, and I think it's not controversial to say that French society is at least self-consciously governed by ideals of, of liberalism, la cité, for example. So coming into Paris, about to give a series of talks about liberalism, and then having this illiberal moment occur where an ideal of liberalism, free speech, is challenged. So we can, for the moment, take liberalism to be the political philosophy according to which freedom and equality are the two ideals. But, of course, freedom and equality, there's many senses of both, uh, as you know better than I do as a political philosopher. But France does have some hate speech laws that are stricter than First Amendment. I think, nevertheless, despite the existence of those laws, there's a kind of pervasive culture of challenging the sacred that is at the very heart of liberal democracy, of 
an ideal liberal democracy. So it was a moment where free speech, that ideal, was being literally murdered before our eyes. On the other hand, there's another ideal of liberalism, which is equality. In moments or in cultures that are deeply devoted to equality and freedom, equality and freedom can blind you or can prevent you from seeing, to avoid the ableist language, can prevent you from seeing that there are inequalities in society. And so this is, for example, the point of the subtitle of Michelle Alexander's book, uh, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. She's drawing our attention to the fact that, well, in the 1960s, there were 200,000 prisoners. Now we have over 2.2 million almost a million of whom are African-American, and yet we think we are governed post-civil rights by the liberal ideal of colorblindness, a form of equality. So in my article, I was drawing attention to the fact that there is a difference between criticizing a religion that represents a group, a minority group in society. I think many people in that minority group are not religious, are not Muslim, but nevertheless, when you're attacking icons of Islam, it can be taken as an attack on people who are atheist, but nevertheless, others think that they're, they follow that icon. So I was drawing attention to the fact that there really is a difference between criticizing Islam and criticizing Christianity, even in a secular atheist society where most people of North African descent or Middle Eastern descent are atheists, and almost everyone of French of European descent is uh, is an atheist. Originally Catholic descent is an atheist as well. There still is a difference between uh, criticizing these religion associated historically with one and the religion associated historically with the other. It's similar to the point in the American body politic was that it's 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 different lampooning the icons of white society, for example, I would say George, you know, James Madison, for instance, as it would be to lampoon uh, Frederick Douglass. Those would be very different um, because of the power relations. But in the end of my article, I relate an anecdote about coming back from the demonstration. I went to a demonstration and, uh, to commemorate the satirists who were murdered, brutally murdered. And coming back, I walked on the Rue de la Roquette, I came by a synagogue on the Rue de la Roquette that was guarded by a number of highly militarized French policemen. And there was one man in particular standing in front of the gates who was North African. And so I think it would be fair to take him as in a group whose ancestors were Muslim. And yet here he is protecting a synagogue. So the point of the ending of the article is to say, well, liberalism leads us to be, be blind to or fail to recognize these differences in power. It nevertheless can result in a society in which a North African, presumably non-Jewish North African, can guard a synagogue. I, I want to talk about that a little bit more, particularly, you know, as we talk about satire, because this attack kind of brings satire back into the media. We were recently talking about this with the controversial release of the movie, The Interview. And I remember over Christmas break, I was debating with some kinfolk 
And I was saying how freedom of speech, they have a right to release the movie, but I just think that it was in bad taste and they shouldn't have done it. And some people disagree with me. And their, their reasoning, their justification was, they said, well, it's satire. It's, it's just satire. And you say in your latest New York Times article, quote, satire is the ultimate method by which reason can address power. The use of satire, even those without control of resources can, merely the use of a pen bring figures of authority down to earth, end quote. And it seems as if you're suggesting that satire has its, I guess, positive power, depending on if you're an authority or if you're not. That's right. That's right. I mean, it's meant to be this, this leveler. And so you can think, oh, it doesn't matter. You, you can satirize everything. But for it to have, I mean, I couldn't say it better than you said yourself, for it to have the positive impact that it's intended to have in liberal democracy, it should be wielded against those with power. And I think it's important to note that, as I say clearly in my article, the editor, the satirists of Charlie Hebdo were aware of this because if you look over time at what they focused on satirizing, it was generally structures of power. And satirizing fundamentalist Islam or satirizing or the disturbing Boko Haram cartoons, which were meant to be a satire of French who were not from that background, but I think didn't really work. Those are really the minority of their cartoons. So I think there, were, there might have been enough Marxists to understand that point. But yeah, as you say, the point of satire is, to, is so that the powerless can address the powerful on their own on, and, and equalize. And so when it's, a, when it's addressed by those who are really pow more powerful than those they satirize, then it becomes somewhat problematic. Yeah, I mean, I, I see this a lot in, in comedy clubs. So, I mean, nowadays we're just used to black comedians talking about white people. Right. <laughs> and it's hilarious when they talk about white people. It's strange and probably unheard of, or the ratio is pretty small for a white comedian to make their whole act about black people. And we will, we will look at that totally different. One of the things I like about you, Jason, is that you're not only doing work in academia, but you're also doing public philosophy. And I, I wish as a, now I feel weird calling myself a philosopher because of your distinction. As a philosopher, I would like to see more philosophers in the public domain. And even as we watch CNN and Fox News, you know, none of those people are philosophers, right? You may have your Cornell West, but even when I present Cornell West to my students, they have no idea he was a philosopher, right? Why do you think there is a lack of philosophers serving as public intellectuals in America? Well, because we have economists. <laughs> that's, the, uh, that's our public culture. Our public culture is one where um, if you have policymakers, they're going to that they valorize economic. I think it's actually an anti-democratic feature of American public culture. It has to do with the desire for experts to give us some kind of scientific judgment. And so you find in the American public culture a constant, a constant valorization of anything that's presented in the language of science. So psychologists tend to play the public role of philosophers on philosophical questions. And so you know, actually knowing Adam Smith's work on empathy is, is, is not important, but doing a psychology experiment that might be less informed by political philosophy or the history of political philosophy, well, then that's going to be reported in the public culture as science, and it's not going to matter that 
that it's not informed by what those notions are and the roles they play in the history of philosophy. I think that in general, there's an overall bias against anything that's qualitative and the sense that any real knowledge must be packaged with the use of science, with the use of statistics, with the use of experiments. And I think we've had in our public culture horrendous problems in, uh, as a result because there's no qualitative way to investigate ideology and bias. We have science being used in incredibly ideological ways. So I think Karl Hart's book, High Price, brings this out with the drug war. Khalil Muhammad's book, The Condemnation of Blackness, brings this out with the use of social science in criminalizing black Americans. And we don't have a place for, in the public discourse, for qualitative reflection or narrative. I mean, you can present to me everything you want, every statistic you want about, for example, the black-white wealth gap, but you can't understand the black-white wealth gap. You can't understand what it means in human terms unless you have someone explaining what it's like to be poor or forget the black-white white wealth gap, poverty versus wealth. You can't understand what it's like to be in Appalachia to be in the repeated, the incredible poverty in Appalachia uh, that is generation after generation immov immovable um, without narrative story of, of what Appalachia is like and what it's like to grow up in that environment. We're, you can't understand, for example, we're presented with all these facts about methamphetamine and the newest wave the, of, of the drug war, uh, but we can't understand why people are drawn to such a terrible drug unless we understand how miserable living conditions are in those communities. And that requires something other than science. It requires narrative. And philosophy, I think, is the victim of an overly scientistic, overly statistical, overly technicist, as my father called it in his work, public discourse. So how could things change? Or should we want things to change? How can we mix philosophy and politics? I mean, I mean, you're, you're in France now. It is my assumption that public intellectuals, philosophers there, do have a place at the policy table. They do, yeah. And so how, how can things change in America? Even their students, it's a requirement for them to take philosophy. So there is some value there in what philosophy can do. Well, I think we have to have a... I think, it, I think it's going to come with a general reaction to the technicist public culture. And I think it's going to bring with it not just philosophy in the public realm, but also uh, creative writers, fiction writers, nar in general, uh, reflective narrative and conceptual engagement with the problems of the day. And what we have to do is we have to somehow get people to understand that they can, that you can gain insight via that method, that, that not all knowledge must be packaged in this technicist form. So I think the only thing that's going to, that can do it is something, something like the New York Times Stone column, which has been remarkable for philosophy, I think, where you can get philosophy there in what is no doubt our major newspaper, and people can gain illumination from it. So, in, and it has to be the kind of illumination that they gain from, that they feel they gain from pop psychology, for instance. And there's the problem, because Americans are conditioned to 
see anything in the vocabulary of science as objective and real and true, even a true statistic or a true experiment that only gives you one piece of information is going to lead to a skewed sense of reality if you don't have the rest of the information. Somehow we need to get that message across that elucidation and understanding is not just being provided with factoid by factoid, and that even those who are providing us with even correct fact are often ideologically biased, or maybe invariably ideologically biased, in which facts they think are important to draw to our attention. We're about to wrap up, but I want to ask you some very quick questions that may or may not have anything to do with philosophy, but they do. Question number one, name a rapper, past or present, who for you comes close to the idea of a philosopher. I guess the first thing that comes to my mind, since you're catching me out of the blue here, is Ice Cube. Um, <laughs> okay. take, take, take his song, A Bird in the Hand, um, and compare it uh, to Tommy Shelby's dark, 2007 Dark Ghetto paper which draws our attention to non-ideal conditions in the American inner city that lead to economic crimes like drug dealing. And what Shelby does is say there's a failure of reciprocity in American society. People are born into great poverty, large wealth gaps between races. And in those conditions, some of the issues about punishment become irrelevant. And Ice Cube's Bird in the, in Bird in the Hand song is about that very topic. It's about the forced economic choice that would lead one to become a drug dealer. Okay. Given the structure of society, it is unreasonable to punish someone for that choice. Speaking of Ice Cube, do you know NWA has a movie coming out very soon? Have you seen the trailer? I do. <laughs> I have. <laughs> do you think I would not know that? <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying. All right, question number two. If you had to watch a movie on repeat every day for a year, what would it be? That is a tough one. Metropolis, I would guess. Uh, I have watched it every day for a year. <laughs> so, uh, because uh, I showed it to my son, who is very young, and uh, which he, he might be mad at me in the future. And uh, because of its representation of some of the very fundamental issues of inequality, that I think are just so central to, to my work and social and political philosophy. So it's the story of a city, Metropolis, where the wealthy just engage in leisure in, uh, in, the, in the city above ground, and below ground, the poor are consigned to a permanent life of labor. Hmm. So focuses around Freda, the son of Joe Freitas and the, the mayor of Metropolis, who is unaware that there's this horrific oppression happening right below him. Wow. Uh, so, and then he discovers it. He discovers that his wonderful life of leisure is based on all this suffering. And so it really brings together a lot of my central interests. The idea that leisure is what is required for reflection. And so you need to have this, this wealthy class that just experiences leisure, which allows them to reflect and be the thinkers of society and planners. And then the laborers who just labor ceaselessly. And then the idea that the very forceful idea that Fritz Lang brings across in that movie, that 
this is the wealthy think this is what's best for the poor. Okay. Last question. What is the most powerful philosophical statement you've ever heard? <sighs> wow, you're really catching me. <laughs> uh, I have to reflect for a moment on this. Okay, you're a philosopher. Uh, That's what you do. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> uh, to, can I can I tell you a a powerful one? Yes. Without, uh, uh, I think it would be man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. <laughs> Rousseau. Thank you, Jason, for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you for your remarkably and typically incisive questions, Maisha. Thank you for listening to the Unmute Podcast. Today's music has been provided by the Stuyvesants. You can find them at thestuyvesants.com. Also, to find links and resources from this episode, as well as to find out how you can help support this podcast, go to unmutepodcast.co. 